0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's open up our Bibles to Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20 and see what God has for us there. With that, I'm going to move into the actual sermon. Um, but if you could open up your Bibles to Zephaniah three fourteen to 20, that'd be great. One of those things that you, you may not know about me and you may know about me is that I love gospel-centered, Scripture saturated songs and hymns, particularly hymns because they are are regular, they're regular melodies that we can learn and memorize words to. Like we just sang Psalm one to come out found of every blessing. It's super easy to recall a a melody line and then add words to it and then memorize those words. I mean, Jed's got to memorize very close to it. I, I, I look out to you guys every now and then and go, who's looking at their pages and who's not? Not not to test you, but just kind of curious to see what's in your head and um, where your focus is. But these hymns that are gospel-centered and scripture-saturated are, I believe, extremely important to our lives. Not because of something that, uh, what we've done, but we need to be reminded of what God has done and who he is Because of things like Sadie being abducted. abducted. What hymn can you think of that would provide you with the assurance that even in the midst of something so dire, something so grave, that we have the ability to recall in our heads and say, you know what, this is absolutely the worst thing that possibly could have happened. It might be, it could be worse, but... Uh, we don't know that. We want to pray that it isn't. We want to pray that she is reunited with her family, that she is that she is found safely. But there is a song that comes to my mind, and uh, providentially in my notes, uh, that we might hear and just ponder upon for a second. He will hold me fast is honestly one of my favorite hymns, and I know Z's favorite hymn, uh, or one of them, uh, mostly because it removes all the power out of our hands and places it in Christ's hands. And just think about the words, when I fear my faith may fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. he will not let my soul be lost. It's his promises that will last. There are no greater words like to remind ourselves of the assurance that we have in Christ and Christ alone. And, Here is where we need to be reminded that um, these aren't just words for anybody. They are words for the Christian and the Christian alone. For if you're not a Christian, what do you have to hang on to? In this case, if her family, if Sadie's family were not Christians, what do they know that is true? Nothing. They have uncertainty in all of it, right? But we know that Christ... Holds all things fast that even he is in control of this moment right now. and so that's kind of where I want to go with tonight's sermon and that's something that we need to remember through this text zephaniah three fourteen to twenty the primary goal for this whole evening is that you would live a joyous life even in the midst of trial and tribulation, even in the midst of Uh, being persecuted and downcast and terrorized by enemies, either internal or external. These things are true for all of us. And teenagers, you, you, you might have something similar to this, but as you get older, you start to see more and more pain in the world that you just cannot understand, that you know is real, and it's something that only God really understands why it's there. So with that, let us lean into His presence this evening, and let us look at 3, three fourteen to twenty. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem! The Lord has taken away the judgment against you; He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach behold at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth and at that time I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord let us pray God and Father, we need your illuminating presence to see what your word has for us this evening. For it's not just in abducted, abduction cases, Lord, but it's just in our daily walk in this world that we need reassurance that you are who you say you are and that you are here with us. Let that be your word this evening. Let it be to our hearts this evening. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage is broken up into two sections. And Before I give you those two sections, I want to kind of give you a, a hint at reading Minor Prophets. I don't know, has anybody read anything about Minor Prophets before? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, sort of. Yeah. Honestly, the minor prophets are difficult if you don't understand how they are, how they sit in the context of Israel's historical timelines. But they're even more difficult if you don't realize how Hebrew is actually written and how it's sung and how it's brought about. So the way Hebrew is written is it's written in circular in like a circular way. You, you see a lot of recurring themes. You see blessings, different types of blessing. You see curses come about when you disobey. It's, it's not just a, a linear straight line, but it's more like if you do these things, you will be blessed, but if you don't, you will be cursed. If you do these things, you won't be blessed. If you do, And they say it a thousand different ways. Um, and, and part of that is because they are trying to drill into your head uh, what the, the precepts of God and who he is, that he is the perfect gift giver, that he is the blessing, that he is the one that will bring about your blessing, because it is him himself. So Zephaniah sits a lot in that same context. In fact, it's very much like Isaiah, if you were to read through Zephaniah. Um, they're both pre-exilic, both pre-exiled you know exile to Babylon. They're both, uh, this one's just much closer than Isaiah was. Isaiah was a couple hundred years removed, or before, and this is, or a hundred years before, The Zephaniah was a couple, like 60 years before, so... Really close. Not the same, though. And uh, one of the big things about Zephaniah that you have to understand is that it is a letter. It is a prophecy of judgment. A prophecy of judgment with a promise at the end. And these promises come with um, the sureness as we see the exile happen. And so these promises come in the midst of these judgment passages. Like if you look through, just go to chapter 1 and you'll see uh, the coming judgment on Judah. He judges Judah from the beginning and says, "This is how we are. This is how you are going to be cut off. This is how I'm going to judge you for your sin. This is how you ha- you will know that I am God." And then he says, talks about the day of the Lord, and then he talks about judging Judah's enemies, and then again Judah judgment on Jerusalem, and then the whole of the nations. For all of their sins are wrapped up in one thing and one thing alone, and that is running after something that is not God, but the idols of their hearts. And so Zephaniah, just like Isaiah, is knocking down the high places of the hearts of the people of Israel, and in this case, the southern kingdom of Judah. One of the major things that you need to see from this text, before I give you the breakdown, is that the Lord, your God, is with you he's with each and every one of you, and that there is no time with which he is not with you. The king is here. You have no reason to fear. And in that, in that uh, truth, we need to see that the division of our text is twofold. Verse 14, verses 14 to 17 uh, revel is calling us to revel in God's gracious presence. Does anybody know what revel means? I see you. Revel? Revel? More, uh, close. With aggression? Close. Celebrate. Yes. Celebrate God's gracious presence. Is verse 14 to 17. I'm using the word revel because revel actually encompasses more of all of the other words like rejoice, exalt, extol. Like, revel is all those things put together. And so, revel in God's gracious presence, that's verses 14 to 17. Verses 18 to 20 is revel in God's sovereign power. Revel in God's sovereign power. So, as we move through our text, I want you to see this at the very fur, very outset. The Lord your God is with you. Revel in his gracious presence. And, and, like we said about the context of Isaiah, it is something that we need to be aware of that in the midst of judgment, it, we, we come to this final section, this final section of Zephaniah, and it's a psalm of praise to God calling the people of Israel to realize who God is and what he is going to do what he will do for and it is sure just as sure as the judgment that is coming so let's start you see these opening lines sing aloud o daughter of zion shout o israel rejoice and exalt with all your heart o daughter of jerusalem verse 14 shows us one point really right out in the outside, not just rejoice, but the Lord's gracious present renders corporate rejoicing. Rejoicing. These are names for all the peoples of Israel, all the chosen people of God, and you are part of that chosen people. I, I look out and I know most of you, if not all of you, I know all of you, and uh, there are uh, so I don't think there's an unbeliever in our midst. But what you should know is that the unbelievers do not have any reason to rejoice in anything. In fact, their rejoicing would be in vain and would be have, would need to be judged because it's rejoicing in what they have done and what they see as good. But that is not what we are called to. We are part of this people. We're part of these this new Israel. We're part of the true Israel that is to call and to rejoice and exult with all of our beings for our merciful God's work. In fact, if you look in verse 15, it says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Why are they rejoicing? Because the judgments that were prophesied for the first three chapters, the whole rest of the book, have been taken away. And what do those judgments look like? They look like clearing away their enemies. Now, if you think about Israel, remember when they crossed over the Jordan in Joshua. What were they told to do? Does anybody remember? They were they were what? Build an altar, yes, but they were told to remove all the enemies within their midst and what do they do? Ah no, we're just going to cohabitate basically. We're going to let them live in our land. We're going to do all these things. So guess what? Part of the judgment of God on them was to send Canaanites and to send the Amorites and send all these people to fluster his, his fluster Israel. It was to create more division within them so that they would realize that they need to follow the command of God and that God himself is the one who is king over them. For God's merciful expiation of the sins of his people is what they are to sing about. You know, the expiation is the throwing, the removal of the penalty of their sins through holy judgment. And this holy judgment looks like destroying the people's enemies. And this destruction of the people's enemies is the, are the, is the removal of the consequences of their own sin back when they were supposed to take the land. And they didn't do it, but God is doing it for them and why do they have nothing to fear even though they're being judged at the beginning of this they're being judged in the middle of it and then they're told hey sing shout aloud for your for rejoice with your whole heart for the lord your god is in your midst in fact he doesn't say just the lord your god he said the king of israel the king of israel the lord is in your midst you shall never again fear evil they have nothing to fear not their own sin not their enemies through God Himself will do away with both. These are the assurances of the blessings of God, not because of His, not because of our work or anything that we've earned, but because of His gracious presence. But I want to draw your attention to one more factor before we move on. Um, notice I said Lord's, the Lord's gracious presence renders corporate rejoicing, corporate rejoicing. These are people groups all within with individuals inside of them. So the individuals are being called to rejoice and exalt as a people, not as a single. For we are saved, yes, individually, but we are saved to something. We are saved to one another, to Christ Jesus, his own body here on earth. And when we do not, when we do not attend corporate worship, when we uh, find ways to usurp that, well, I'm just tired. I want to go for a bike ride. Whatever it is, it's my only day off. Um, I'm not going to throw the pandemic in there because that's just low blow. Um, but the idea is if you're shirking your corporate rejoicing with the people of God, you can pro- I can promise you, you will never experience the fullness of the blessing of God in his people. That grace, peace, and mercy that I was talking about at the beginning will not be yours because you will not hear it from other people, but you will long, I hope, you will long for it as individuals. And you'll keep searching until you find something that fills that gap. And typically, you find that in your own preferences. Oh, I prefer this. I prefer ham. Well, actually, I hate ham. It's very, very often, very often. Often I just avoid the ham altogether and eat like a salad because I don't like ham. But that ham is not is only as good as me realizing that that's a preference for me, but I need that ham to live. I need that meat to sustain me. Just like these people, they needed to realize that the king of Israel was sustaining them, that he was in their midst and they did not need to fear evil anymore. See, the king of Israel... God, the benevolent king of Israel, will accomplish the work that his people could and would not do. The removal of sin and idolatry and the removal of the consequences of their sin was the work of God alone and not their own. So I have a question. What must we fear with the Lord in our midst? What must we fear if the Lord is in our midst? We're being told nothing. Nothing. We're being told nothing to be feared. And that includes evangelism. That includes going outside of our comfort zones and finding people who are uh, just going about our daily lives and talking to them about their need for a Savior. One of the most encouraging things that I hear during the week is from brothers, mostly brothers, in our, uh, in our congregation who tell me about the conversations they're having with people that they have just met like a brother who just had a conversation, gospel conversation with his trainer. Like he he intentionally bought a 12-week training package and picked this dude because he knew that he didn't go to church. How he knew? I don't know. He didn't tell me, but he knew he didn't go to church. So he wanted to have a gospel conversation with him. So he bought a personal training package to have it with that dude because he does not fear man. He fears the Lord and there is nothing to fear with the Lord on his side for he just goes after it. And he knows that the promise in Matthew 28, 20 is that it's filled in Christ. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. So go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. There is nothing that our Lord cannot do. There is nothing that our Lord will not do. And just as the covenant people of Israel were promised the joy of salvation, so too we have that same promise in Christ, and we have the responsibility to share it. You see, we know that the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel, is actually Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is shown to us in multiple places through Nathanael's acclamation in John 149. Even doubting Thomas at the end of John in John 20, 28, they both directly confess that Jesus is not only king, but he is God, Lord over all. In Galatians 2.20, we know that he is the one who takes away our sins. He, he gave himself up for us. And Paul believed that Christ was God in so many other places he could go to. And his sacrifice was perfect for him and him alone and for his people. So do you find your, yourself as a part of this corporate rejoicing? Or do you find yourself sitting on the outskirts? Because coming to service on Sundays is just the beginning. It is honestly where we become one voice and testify to, the God, to God's gracious purposes and his will for all people. Is there room for preference in the middle of that to stop you from being with God's people? The answer is no. There is no room for preference in that. So do you revel in the good news of Christ? As your perfection before God, is he your song, your joy? There's a reason why we sang His mercy is more these past two weeks. One, my, my boy likes to sing it a lot running around the house. All of a sudden you'll hear Gideon, brave the Lord. It's amazing. Brings a huge smile to my face. Not that he knows what it is, but he reminds me every time that his mercy is More. It's more than my sin. It's more than my enemies. It's more than anything that I could do. So what am I to do with that? I am supposed to praise the Lord. Shout, O Israel. Shout, O Zion. Sing of his great works. For he is stronger than darkness. His mercy is new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So we are to revel In God's gracious presence because of his perfect work. But not only that, we are to uh, not only to revel in his gracious presence because of his perfect work, but because he brings comfort to his people. His presence brings comfort for his people. So we look at verse 16 and 17, and it says, Fear not, let your hand not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. Again, a reminder that you have nothing to fear, but you must do the work of the Lord. You are not to lose hope for, because of the things that are around you. Just like these people, the prophets, were reminding the people of Israel not to give up on the hope of deliverance from their future exile because God is still with them. God is still with them. In fact, this is a kind of a direct refutation what you see back in Zephaniah 1.12 where some were saying that God was not there and did not care about them. In fact, you kind of see this throughout all the Bible. Uh, When the enemies of God assail his people, they usually levy the accusation, where is your God? Where is he? He didn't come to your rescue. He's not listening. Psalm 42, if you want to go look it up, it's a good wrestling with that, that concept. They use, try to use that same tactic. So we reminded that the Lord your God is in your midst. But the people of God must not fear anyone because God is with them and he will not only be with them but care for them and comfort them in their affliction. He is the mighty one who will save. He promises that his presence will save them from themselves and their enemies. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you. He will exalt over you. His care goes beyond the law's care, which these people were trying to fulfill and then ignoring completely. But that law is, is only um, so good as to show them their sin. But it's even more, even more the case that the, it is greater care than even the greatest earthly father has for his kids. He personally delights in his people for their care and his pleasure and Matthew Henry says it really pithily, and I'm just going to use it. He loves to love his saints. Do you struggle with this? Do you, do you struggle with the idea that God himself, the creator of the universe, omnipresent, omnipotent God, the one who is all things, are all, all, at all times, he's, he needs nothing, but he loves you and he delights in you. That's a, that's a hard thing for a lot of people to grasp. It's a hard thing for me to remember. Sometimes I see God as not the benevolent God, but the one who's judging. I understand. It's it's difficult to get past that. But when we look at Christ, we see the extent of the love that God has for us and the delight that he has for his bride. And that extent is expressed in Ephesians 3.19, the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. And that love is great, as great as Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that delight in Ephesians 5.25, Christ upholds and cares for his bride, unlike any other people and any other person will. So kind of obliquely, since the Lord's gracious presence brings comfort for his people, why do we fear what God ordains? Why do we fear what is around us at any given moment? This is it just an uncertainty of what's next? The Lord your God is in your midst. If it's something that you just don't understand, the Lord your God is in your midst. His gracious presence brings comfort for his people. Christ has taken away the greatest threat to you. Your penalty for sin, that is death, and eternal separation from his love, experiences wrath forever. So revel in his gracious presence. All of God's people, Christ's people from across the world down to the individual member are called to sing with raucous excitement over this news, this good news found in Christ and Christ alone. For the Lord, your God is with you. Reveal, revel in his gracious presence. I have a hard time with saying reveal and revel. They're different and I have a hard time with it. Anyway, so not only are we supposed to revel in his gracious presence, but the second half, and this will go much quicker. We are The Lord your God is with you. Revel in his sovereign power, his sovereign power. Notice the repetition in these next couple verses, 18 to 20. He says, I will, in six different forms. He says, in the first four, he says, in verses 18 to 19, I will gather, I will deal, I will save, I will change all pointing to God's sovereign power over the earthly oppression of his people. He says that I will gather those of you who mourn over the festival, for no lack of festivities will hinder his worship. Think about this. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. The idea of exile means the idea of being removed from his temple. The idea of exile means removed from the central place of worship. But guess what? The greater temple Is with you. He is in your midst. Christ Jesus our Lord. No lack of festivities will hinder our worship. No physical maladies, external oppression, or internal shame will stop their praise. You see, there is nothing that God will not handle so that He is glorified even when we don't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. The last two, I wills, it says, I will bring you in, and I will make you renowned and praised. And if you think about this, this is kind of a play on what he promises Abraham. He promises Abraham what? A, to be a blessing to the nations, and that he would have a seed, that number the stars of the sky. That that blessing would to him and to the nations, will be one that came from a place where God does it, not Abraham. And we need to look to that same sovereign God to produce that same result in our lives. For he will bring and make all that he wants for all of his praise so that we might see his glory and be a conduit of the same for he will gather his people as he is elected. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, one of my favorite passages. But his people are elected for what purpose? To the praise of his glorious grace. He will set them as a jewel in his crown, see Zech- Zechariah nine sixteen. for we are his workmanship made in Christ Jesus. Why does he say that he will sing over us that he will exalt over us, that he will quiet our souls. It's because he did the work and he sent his son and he sent his spirit and he restored us and he brought us together and he will see us to the end. The Lord's work of deliverance promises final consummation of the sufferings of his people. Israel's exile away from their land and then their return and our exile to our sin They all are remedied in the life of Christ. Instead of dwelling in the maladies of earth, let's look to the sovereign Lord of creation, Christ Jesus. The Lord your God is with you. Revel in his sovereign power. For he will bring all of his elect to himself, bind up their wounds, and elevate them to kings and queens as his crowning jewel of creation. For now... We are Christ's workmanship, made in him for the glory of the Father and the praise of his glorious grace. He is our treasure and ultimately our reward. So when I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he would hold me fast. I could never keep my hold Through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Further, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul get lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Praise the Lord. Shout of his grace. Revel in his gracious presence and sovereign power. Let us pray.